you would, open your Bibles to John, John chapter 20. And if you stand, I'm going to read the whole chapter. So John chapter 20, I'm going to read the whole chapter, which really begins with the resurrection and ends with the reason that all of these things were written. It's kind of a capstone to the book of John. And so it seems good to celebrate the resurrection as we read. And then we'll be focusing really on the response of the apostles. Most specifically, John brings to us the response of one of the apostles, Thomas, whom we often call Doubting Thomas, but as we'll see, he makes powerful proclamation to the reality of Christ as Savior and Lord. So let's read the whole thing. Uh, just delight in the Word of God to us this morning. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already rolled away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So, when it was evening, on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. And reach here your hand and put it in my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? 
Blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Please be seated. Now, yesterday we had a memorial service for one of our precious members, Carter Lawhorn. Now, one of the purposes was to properly grieve. We grieved over the sickness and debilitation that come with death. We grieved for a church and the family over the loss of a beloved friend. And we grieved with Mike over the loss of his best friend and helpmate for the time that he will spend here without her companionship. We grieved because it is right to grieve. Because death is ultimately the result of sin, the wages of Adam's sin, our sinful nature, and our willful acts of sin. Yet we did not grieve as those who have no hope. So we also were there to rejoice. And the reason for our rejoicing was grounded in what we celebrate this morning, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus burst from the tomb and conquered death for Carter and for all believers who repent of sin and trust in Christ. And for them and for us, death has been transformed into sleep. When we close our eyes in death, our soul awakes in the presence of Jesus. And not only this, we then look forward to the final resurrection of the dead in which our bodies and souls will be reunited and we will joyfully worship, serve, and grow in relationship with Christ for all of eternity. And we will do this perfectly with guilt and the taintedness of sin forever removed. 1 Corinthians 15, 16 says this, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And so thus this morning, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the single most momentous event in the history of the universe the resurrection is absolutely fundamental to Christianity, and no one who denies it can be a true believer. Without the resurrection, there is no Christian faith, there is no salvation, there is no true righteousness, and there is no hope. However, our celebration, full of joy, is not a casual one this morning. Christ's payment for and his conquering of death demands a response, for we do not commemorate a past event only, but we commemorate an ongoing reality. We are to respond this morning. We are to recognize, remember, and press forward in obedience to Christ. So what we'll see this morning is that when we truly comprehend the glory of Christ as revealed in his resurrection and presented to us in the scripture, we can do nothing greater than fall on our knees and worship him as our Savior and Lord. When we truly comprehend the glory of Christ as revealed in his resurrection, as presented to us in the scriptures, we can do nothing greater than fall on our knees and worship him as our Lord and our God. The resurrection of Christ, as revealed through the word of God, demands and deserves a believing response. Now, this morning our purpose is to look at the resurrection through the lens provided by the apostle John as he focuses on the response of the apostles, and yet he singles out one response as particularly instructive, that of the man we often call Doubting Thomas. However, as we will see, Thomas is a complex character whose final 
recorded act of worship provides us with one of the most powerful testimonies in history to the lordship, deity, and deliverance of our Lord Jesus. So this morning, we will observe Thomas's background, his absence, his doubt, his admonishment, his confession, and his legacy. So first, let's look at Thomas's background. Well, Thomas is often maligned for his doubt. And yet we will see that there is much more to Thomas than his initial grumpy response to Christ's resurrection. While the other gospel writers record almost nothing about Thomas, John takes several opportunities to introduce Thomas to his readers in preparation for this final act of Thomas's, which we just read about here. None of the other gospel writers mention Thomas except in the list of disciples. John presents him so that he can bring him forth at the end to give us a picture of what it means to really make a final proclamation of Christ, to recognize his lordship and his deity. So Thomas's background is that he had courage and commitment. He wasn't just a doubter, right? He's a man of courage and commitment. Turn to John 11. So just move backward in your text a little bit so you can flip the pages backward or swipe upward or however you do that uh, and get to John chapter 11. Because remember, each thing, each each historical narrative presented to us in the book of John has a purpose. It's moving us towards that final end purpose of, of our believing because of what is written. So this presentation about Thomas here is not an accident. So John chapter 11, here we are in the, the, the story is, the historical narrative is the death of Lazarus and Jesus waiting before he goes to visit Lazarus. And really the disciples fear over the fact that if they go back to be in Judea, if they go back to be with Lazarus, that they might be killed. So in verse 11, this Jesus said, and after he said to them, after that he said to them, our fellow, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will not recover. Now Jesus had spoken this of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So really this is the first time that the disciples had been introduced to this concept that when a believer dies, he just sleeps. Why? Because he will awake. He will wake to life. When you go to bed at night, you expect to wake up alive. Well, believers, when they die, they wake up alive. They have eternal life. So Jesus introduces this concept here. He says, look, I'm going to go awaken him from sleep. He is not truly dead, as it were. I'm going to raise him to physical life, but I think indicative of the spiritual life also that Lazarus had. So then Jesus said to them, he explains it, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad, verse 15, for your sakes, that I was not there, so that you may believe. Right, so it's gonna, all of this is in light of the fact that he wants the disciples to believe in him. He says, let us go to him. Therefore, verse 16, Thomas. So here we have Thomas. First time he's introduced in the book of John. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, which means the twin. So apparently he, well, he had a twin brother or sister somewhere. We don't know who that was. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us go so that we may die with him. So we see that although Thomas was not always a doubter, he is maybe a bit pessimistic. Notice what he says. All right, we're, we're going to go. And they'd already said, look, if we go, the Jews are ready to stone us. Why would you go back there? Thomas says, it's all right. Um, his courage, we will go. And if we have to die, we'll die. Thomas here was willing to die with Jesus. He had walked with him for several years. Right? He believed in Jesus as the Messiah. I think it's clear that each of the disciples, except for Judas, believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They put their trust in him in that way. And Thomas says, look, I'm, I'm ready to go and die. He was a man of courage and a man of commitment. Right? And, and certainly there's no accident that John points out to us that it is Thomas who said this, not Peter, who is normally the one who speaks up. But here we have Thomas saying, let's go. Even if we have to die, I'll go. 
it is apparent that Thomas did not want to live without Christ. Therefore, he was willing to die with him. He would rather die than be left behind and separated. That's what Thomas is saying. Even if we have to die, I'm going to go. Because it would be better to die with you than live without you. That's a pretty strong commitment. Maybe stronger even than some of you here this morning. Well, Thomas not only had this courage and commitment, but it was built on love. I think we see that in another incident in John 14. So move ahead in your Bibles. Here we are now in the upper room, the Last Supper, and Jesus is really proclaiming to his disciples the things that are coming. And out of love, Jesus is presenting these truths. He wants to comfort them. And in John 14, verse 1, Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas. Okay, so verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? So here Thomas again speaks up. Jesus is trying to comfort them. I'm going to go away. I'm going to prepare a place. I'm going to come back and get you. And Thomas says, don't go. I mean, very similar to what he said in John 11. If you're going to go, we're going to go with you and die. Right? Here he's saying, don't go. We don't know the way. Thomas was afraid, fearful that he didn't actually know how to be with Jesus. I do you think this, this presents a strong love of Christ? He wanted to be with him. And he was distressed that Jesus would leave, and he didn't know the way to get to him. And yet Jesus is going to now make perhaps one of the most famous statements in all of Scripture to remind Thomas that he did actually know the way. And he wasn't recognizing it at that time, but what does Jesus say in verse 6? Jesus said to him, very interesting, said to Thomas, directly to him. Thomas says this. Jesus looks at Thomas and says, I am the way. So really what he's saying, Thomas, you do know the way. You know me. I am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the Father but through me. So in response to Thomas's love, his desire to not be left without Jesus, to know the way, Jesus says, I am the way. He makes it very clear. There's only one way, it's through me. Believe in me. I'm the way and the truth and the life. And so we see Thomas's courage, his commitment, and his love. He was deeply distressed over the idea of being without Jesus. Now, back to our text in John 20. The first part of that text, that verse, the, that chapter is, is about the resurrection and all the things that took place. But as we get to verse 19, and we'll reference those events in just a moment, but as we get to verse 19, what we're going to see is that Thomas here, very noticeably, John will point this out, is absent. So we have his background, we find out a little bit about him, John has presented that to us, but now we see in this most important time, that is this first day of the week, after Jesus has been resurrected, when all the disciples are gathered together, Thomas is gone. He is not there. Fascinating. All right, so we're going to learn from that. So let's look at Thomas's absence. And really here now we focus a bit on the disciples' response. That is the other 10. Remember, Judas is gone. Thomas is not here, right, in, at this particular gathering. And so there are 10 of the disciples and probably the others who were with them, right? The, the original, of the original 12, 10 are left, and then those who had also followed Jesus. A very small number, right? And they are gathered together. So we, we find them in verse 19. So... When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, the day that Jesus had raised from the dead. That's the events that we've just learned about in the first 18 verses, right? The first day of the week. And really, we have here, and we'll see in the next several verses, that John seems to make a point of talking about the particular day. Certainly the day Jesus rose, but also the day the disciples begin to gather. He'll mention that twice, 
right, together on this Sunday night, would have been our Sunday, together on Sunday night here, and then the next week we'll see that they're gathered together again, which does seem to set a precedent for us. The gathering of believers then became that particular day. It's when they chose to meet, and they've been doing that. We have been doing that then down throughout history. It's why you're here this morning. It's why this isn't Saturday or Friday. You're here on Sunday morning because we are celebrating every Sunday the resurrection of Jesus. That was built into the very nature of the gathering of the saints. That we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. So they are together. However, we're going to see that on this first Sunday, they are not a particularly triumphant group. right? And so we're going to see their responses to Jesus. So they gather, but it says the doors were shut where they were, verse 19, for fear of of the Jews. Now, this is entirely understandable, right? Their master had been taken unto death, right? They had heard reports of his resurrection, but even regardless of that, that didn't mean the Jews weren't going to come for them and try to kill them. In fact, the rumor was what? That the disciples had stolen the body. So it's very clear that the disciples were avoiding the religious leaders, particularly because of fear, and they hadn't yet taken hold of the courage and strength that would come from a full belief in Jesus as having risen from the dead. As we'll see, they have a belief, right? But they do not fully believe. They're still much doubting. So the disciples here are still fearful. They're doubting. They're gathered together, huddled in this upper room, most likely. And as they are there, huddled in fear, on that day, Jesus came and stood in their midst. Now, let's remember, again, what has happened. What brings us to this point? The women had gone to the tomb and found it empty. Mary had come and told the disciples, who did not believe her at all. Peter and John then run to the tomb, discover that it is in fact empty, and remember that it is John only who believes. So maybe there's one real believer here, right? John. Peter does not, at that point, does not believe, and he, they go, both go to their homes. Jesus then appears to Mary and to the other women on their way back from the tomb. Uh, Jesus appears to Mary at the tomb. And then the women on the way back, the women go and tell the disciples that Jesus had appeared to them, but we learn from Luke that they still didn't believe. So after the women came and said, Jesus is risen, they still did not believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, Matthew and John leave the story here until the evening account. However, Jesus, at some unrecorded, uh, unrecorded point, appeared to Simon because Luke re Luke reveals that. He doesn't reveal the time or doesn't give the incident, but he talks about the fact that Jesus revealed himself to Peter. And it is that testimony which seems to have them at least believing. We'll, we, we see in Luke 24, 33, says, and they got up, this is really speaking of the two on the road to Emmaus, the two disciples. They got up that very hour, they returned to Jerusalem. And they found gathered together the 11 and those who were with them, saying, so the, the 11 were with, uh, were there at the, at the, in the room, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experience on the road and how he had recognized by them in, been recognized by them in the breaking of bread. So they were saying at that point, the disciples, the Lord has really risen. Why? Because he had appeared to Peter. They didn't believe the women, but they appeared to believe what Peter had said, although as we'll see, they were still doubting, still had many doubts. This is not the kind of belief that then sent them out to the streets making proclamation. So, back here into our text, all these things have happened. They're gathered together. We know from Luke that then the two disciples from Emmaus burst in the door and begin explaining their experiences. And as they are there together in fear, yet in a level of belief, Jesus has risen. He's appeared to Simon. All right, so Peter is most likely a believer at this point. Then Jesus appears to them. Jesus came 
and he stood in their midst. It's, it's just even the way that it's written, it, written is startling. The door is closed, right? John makes that clear. And all of a sudden, Jesus came and appeared in their midst. I think it's almost like Jesus answered and said to them, it's only one event. He didn't come and then walk in the door. He didn't knock. He appears right in the middle, right in the middle. Right? This is Jesus in his resurrected body, in his glorified body. Remember that Jesus retains forever a true body, yet it is a glorified one. It is the kind of body that we will receive, and he will have that body for all of eternity. He's retained it so that, again, we might believe and also he might be the true mediator between God and men. He is that, the true God-man. So he retains this body, but apparently can do unique things. It just appears. You might remember that he had just been with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, in Emmaus. All of a sudden, they come running back. Well, he didn't come running with them. He just shows up, right? So they show up, and all of a sudden, he is there. And of course, it startles them. Anywhere when Jesus appears, even, right, not as the, not as the glorified risen Lord like to John in Revelation chapter 1, but even yet, as the truly human yet glorified body, Jesus, they are stunned by this, and he has to say to them what? Peace be with you. That's very similar to saying, don't be afraid. I'm not here to harm you, and I am here as your friend. He's really establishing again. He's just, again, reminding them of the relationship that he has, and now it's really a picture of what he wants them to do going forward, right? his unity with them as they now take on his task to carry forth the gospel. So he says, peace be with you. But then notice what he does. Right? We learn from Luke right, that they were still confused and despairing and doubtful. Even when he shows up, they still did not fully believe. They thought they were seeing a ghost. We learned that from Luke, right? So they said that, that belief that they had was not, in, the, in, in essence, in the fully risen body of Christ, that he had a glorified body, that he was truly risen. So he encourages them, and he says to them, when he had said this, he, verses verse 22, uh, excuse me, verse 20, and when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. Well, what was he showing them? Was this, you know, hey, look, I've got some hands. We know what he was showing them. He was showing them the nail scars in the hands. And then he showed them his side. He was showing them the scar on his side, or maybe the, the wound's still there. It's hard to know exactly what they were seeing. There is some indication that perhaps the very wounds themselves, not bleeding or, or, or continuing to you know, be, be festering, but wounds visible that you could have placed your hands into. Because we will see that Jesus offers Thomas to do that. Maybe, again, maybe the scars, the indentations, okay? And we don't know exactly what this looks like, but we do know that we can see that both they could see then and for all of eternity, we will be able to see this reflection of Jesus' death on our behalf. That that's really built in now to his physical body. What an amazing testimony, right, of the purpose of Christ and his love for us to save us. And he retains those scars. This is what he came to do to bring salvation to us. Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our iniquities. He was crushed for our transgressions. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, by his wounds, we are healed. It's a visible reminder to us. And what a blessing again of God to bring that visible reminder to his disciples now. And again, I'm pointing this out, and I think John is carefully pointing this out, because when when Thomas later on says, look, I want to see the nail scars. I want to see the, the scar on his side. Well, the disciples had already gotten to see that. And it was necessary for Jesus to come to his disciples who would become his apostles. That's what made them apostles, to have viewed the risen Christ, to have walked with him in his ministry, to have been commissioned by him, to believe in him, and to have seen him in his resurrection. It was necessary for him to appear to all of them. Here, he appears to all but Thomas, 
and he shows them his hands, and he shows them his side. And now look back in the text. This is fascinating. And after he does this, again, Luke 24, 39 says they were still doubting. They were troubled. They thought maybe it was a spirit. All right, but after he does this, right, in the end of verse 20, then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Isn't that fascinating? They saw him when he walked in the door. Or excuse me, they saw him when he appeared in their midst, but not until they see the nail scars, not until he reveals to them the reality of his true resurrection in his physical body, then they say, they rejoice to see the Lord. Now is when they really saw him. They'd seen him with their physical eyes, I think is the indication before. Here they see him spiritually. They truly recognize who he is. At this point, they truly believe the resurrection. Now, this is a little hard for us to grasp because they clearly believed that Jesus was the Messiah before this. There's no doubt that the disciples ahead of time before this event believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They said so themselves. But as things progress forward, remember, they didn't yet. They hadn't believed in the resurrection. Jesus told them he was going to rise, and what did they say? Well, we don't know what you're talking about. They didn't believe in that. It is necessary for all Christians to believe in the resurrection, but for the disciples, it came in stages. They first believed that he was the Messiah. Then they believed that he was the risen Messiah. Now, for us, it all comes as one package. We believe now in the risen Messiah, the risen Lord, because this has already taken place. But it was necessary for them to see Christ, to believe in him and in his resurrection. And I think John indicates that here. They saw him. Now they rejoiced because they saw him as their risen Lord. He appears to them for this reason. And they respond to him, what, what, a, what a blessed God we serve, that Jesus would come. He would speak to them. He would show them who he was so that they might put faith and trust in him. And again, let's remember that the signs that we seek, and we'll, we'll talk much more about this in, in just a moment. The sign, it's not that there are no signs of Jesus' resurrection. It's not that we believe apart from any reality. It is very clear here that John is presenting to us in his message the reality of a risen Lord that could be seen and touched. That matters. He's not a myth. It's not some invention of religion that we come up with that only exists in our own minds. It doesn't actually have to exist in reality. He truly is Savior and Lord who walked upon this earth and died and was buried and rose. This is very important. The disciples see this sign. They touch his body. They believe who he is. He goes on to commission them. Now, there's much here, and we just don't have time to, to walk through that. I mean, it's a, it's a classic text, but it's, you know, all kinds of ramifications he says again, verse 21, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I send you. So now again, he repeats it. Right? We are unified in this work that now is to be done. Jesus, God sent me, the Father sent me right, to bring redemption, to make provision for sin. Now you are to go forward and proclaim that message. Right? What Jesus came to do, the disciples now go and proclaim. And they're unified him, with him in that. The Father sent Jesus, and now the Father sends the disciples, through the person and work of Jesus. And, verse 23, or verse 22, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So also evident here is the need for the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of God, to go with them to do this. Now, there's been all kinds of questions about, well, did they get the Holy Spirit here, or did they, did they get the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2? When was it? I think the best way to understand this is Jesus here, when he commissions them, is saying, you will have need of the Spirit. So in this breathing upon them and saying, receive the Spirit, he's making this promise of the Spirit coming. It does not seem that they were indwelled by the Spirit at this point. Not that it matters all that much. 
one way or the other, by Acts chapter 2, moving forward, they were indwelt by the Spirit of God permanently, and all believers are indwelt. But nonetheless, I think this is the, the, because the commissioning is here, he's saying, the Father sends me, I send you, and I send you in the power of the Spirit. You will need the Spirit of God. And then, the resulting message, verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they've been retained. It is so important for us to understand that that is not a promise to one of the apostles, like Peter would now be the one who forgives sins, or any individual person who does this. This is given to the apostles as the representatives and the layers of the foundation of the church. This is given to them corporately. The church's mission is to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins, and to be the ones that then verify that reality here on earth. That's what the church does. So he's speaking to them as those who will lay the foundation of the church. I give you the Spirit of God, and I give you the necessary message, which is to proclaim the forgiveness of sins, and by implication, right, what says retain the sins of any, they've been retained. Judgment if you do not repent. That's what the church does. We proclaim forgiveness of sins, but we we proclaim the judgment of God and the eternal punishment in hell for those who do not repent. This is what we say. This is our message. John MacArthur puts it this way. The verse does not give authority to Christians to forgive sins. Jesus was saying that the believer can boldly declare the certainty of a sinner's forgiveness by the Father because of the work of his Son, because of the work of his Son, if that sinner has repented and believed in the gospel. The believer with certainty can also tell those who do not respond to the message of God's forgiveness through faith in Christ that their sins as a result are not forgiven. And I would add that this is all done through the authority of the church. Another commentator says this, the message of the church is the forgiveness of sins through Christ. The mission of the church is to liberate the world from the power of sin. This commissioning cannot be narrowed to a single task, but is prescriptive of the very life of the church. So here, these apostles are commissioned now. They're given the promise of the Spirit. They are, they are, the statement of peace with God is made, and the ongoing mission now, they're now sent out. This apostolic sending is here. But notice verse 24. John wants to make a point of something. But Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. It appears that maybe, maybe even from the narrative, it appears that he was there maybe even at the beginning, but for some reason he left because when the two from Emmaus came, it said the 11 were gathered. But somewhere before Jesus shows up, Thomas was gone. Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So now Thomas's absence just reminds us of something. I'm going to make a bit of application here. Thomas missed the gathering of the saints. Don't miss it. What was going on when they gathered together, Jesus came and met them gathered. And that is his practice and his purpose then down throughout the next 2,000 years is that he has a unique purpose for the gathered church and he ministers to us in this way. May may I say, the action is here. So well done. Not Not the place, but the fact that believers are gathered together. This is what Jesus died to build, to purchase And so his church gathered is an essential place for us. Hebrews 10 tells us this. We are to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We don't forsake our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but we encourage one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. The gathering of the saints matters. 
It is in this setting that the primary blessings of Christ come to us through the preaching of the word, prayer, singing, the ordinances, baptism and communion, fellowship, and the one another's. Christ ministers to his church through their corporate gathering because we are one body. Thomas missed it. He misses out on this first commissioning. Now, by the Lord's grace, he's going to draw him in, but for a very specific purpose. So that we can see what's going on in the heart of Thomas, we can be reminded of the need then to make a proclamation of Jesus as our Lord and our God. So now we have Thomas's doubt. And he did, in fact, refuse to believe. It is clear, right? He doubted that Jesus had risen. So in verse 24, but Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, so sometime during the week, they're saying to him, we have seen the Lord. So the apostles now fully believing, having seen truly Jesus, the risen Savior, now proclaim this to Thomas. He's alive. We've seen him. But he said, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and I put my finger into the place of the nails, and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. This is stubborn refusal to believe, no doubt. But let's be careful here. Thomas believed in Jesus as the Messiah. He had accepted that fact and that truth. He had just not yet added to it, again, in this salvation history way, he had not yet added to it the belief in the resurrection. This was essential. It was essential that he do this. He balks at doing this here because of unbelief, because perhaps of his despair, because perhaps of his, his kind of his nature to, to look at things the worst way. He refuses at this point to believe, and he should have received apostolic testimony. But I want to remind you that the disciples who are now proclaiming to him that Jesus is really alive, what? They had already seen what Thomas is demanding. And so let's be careful before we throw Thomas under the bus. They were believing fully. Remember, they had a concept of Jesus having been risen, but they didn't fully believe until he showed up and they saw him. Well, Thomas is asking for the same thing they got. He's like, you want me to believe on your testimony? I want to see what you did. Now, he should have believed. Jesus will tell him that, right? It would have been better for you to have believed on the basis of this testimony. But I think we are getting a picture here also of an apostle right, wrestling with these realities and Jesus is going to come and graciously draw him into the same commissioning. How gracious is our Savior? So Thomas refuses their testimony. He wants personal proof. I mean, he puts it very graphically. I want to take my finger and I want to put it into those scars. I want to take my hand and I want to stick it into his side. I need to experience this before I will believe. As we said, the other disciples didn't believe without this proof. Neither does Thomas. And his unbelief does not reflect a full unbelief of someone who did not have any concept or belief in Jesus at all, but not yet adding to that belief with what is necessary for, and, and finally for a believer to believe in the resurrection. I also want to remind us that doubt continued, had this doubt continued, it would have indicated a rebellion of heart in Thomas. It doesn't you know the end of the story. This unbelief, or this doubt, does not form itself into unbelief. It really resolves itself into belief by faith. So nowhere in Scripture is doubt somehow encouraged. Sometimes people use Thomas as, well, see, he was just a doubting kind of guy. Doubted all the time. Not by the time we're done with this text. And actually, really not before. There's only one spot here where he wrestles and struggles, but it's not the doubt of abject unbelief. 
You might be here this morning, well, I just don't believe. You're going to have to prove it to me. You're going to have to show me. We're going to see that God is going to show you in a different way. He's going to use Thomas's example to actually present to you a powerful testimony that you ought to believe. But he's not going to show up to you. He showed up to Thomas. Thomas did, in fact, doubt. The doubt is not affirmed, but it resolves itself in belief, which all doubt in believers ultimately must do. Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, right? And he is means everything about him, that he is the Savior, that he is the Lord, that he died and buried and was rose, and rose, that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. Now, kind of the emergent church of, you know, 10 or 15 years ago made a, made a virtue out of doubt. We always just have lots of doubt because we don't know for sure and the world doubts, so we had a doubt with them. That's the furthest thing from Christian truth. Thomas is not the patron saint of doubters. In fact, as we will see, right, he is the apostle of those who proclaim loudly and strongly that Jesus is Lord and God. So if you're doubting this morning, my prayer is that your doubt will resolve through faith into action as Thomas's did, as Thomas's did. So Jesus admonishes Thomas here. So verse 26, he is gentle, as we'll see. So verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were again inside. Eight days. Well, that includes the Sunday that they talked about this. So apparently they might have even talked to him that night. Right? Then they're talking to him through the week, right? six days, and then the eighth day is then the second Sunday, that next Lord's Day, that next resurrection Sunday, as it were. So they once again are gathered together. And what do we have? A pattern. The first pattern, as I mentioned, of people meeting on that first day. They're all gathered together. Again, this is the day of Jesus' resurrection, that first day of the week, notice that the doors are still closed, right? They've not yet overcome their fear. They will, right? We're going to see them in the book of Acts, what? Bursting out into the temple, running into the city, proclaiming the realities of who Jesus is, but they're not quite there yet, right? They haven't yet fully received that, the, uh, the power from on high, the Spirit of God. So they're still hiding, and they're together, and Jesus, again, verse 26, he came, the doors having been shut, and he stood in their midst, and he said, peace be with you. He reproduces for Thomas exactly what he did for the other apostles. And again, I would say this is necessary. Thomas is a commissioned apostle. It is necessary for him to see the risen Lord. And so in his grace, even though Thomas was gone, and even though Thomas was doubting, what does Jesus do? He comes, and he appears to him. And he appears in exactly the same way, and he says exactly the same thing shows up in their midst as they are there and says, peace be with you. Again, expressing that unity of relationship as well as a calming effect. Don't be afraid. But then, notice verse 27, he speaks directly to Thomas. We don't know if there's other, you know, if there's any other conversation before that, but John records, he shows up in the room, almost like he shows up in front of Thomas. <laughs> he says, Thomas, he is there for him. He is there to care for his doubting one, his struggling one. This should encourage you. And as we will see, there is a direct application to us today, not the physical appearance of Jesus, but we'll have to wait for a minute. So he appears. And, and notice what he says to him. He does not immediately rebuke him. Thomas, how could you have said these things about me? Because he clearly knows what he said. How, why are you doubting? Why didn't you believe? Why didn't you just believe what Peter said or believe what John said? No, he, he responds to what Thomas has already said, even though Jesus wasn't there. He says, reach with your finger. Interesting, reach and see, right? 
So physically reach, but the thing is, and then see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it in my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. So Thomas's admonishment, Jesus appears to him. Jesus appeals to him, right? Reach with your finger and see. Reach with your hand, put it in my side. Again, Christ's wounds are proof of his resurrection, but as we said, they are more than that. The eternal demonstration that the work of redemption has been done, that it is finished, the price is paid, and God's wrath is satisfied. In Revelation 5, 6, at the end of time, John says, I saw the, between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. I think that's what this indicates, that the wounds are on Christ. They re- remain on him in the body that he retains, even in heaven. But then Jesus does admonish Thomas. Thomas, you wanted to touch my side. You wanted to touch my hand, so do that. But believe. Stop being unbelieving. Thomas did not believe in the resurrection. You now need to believe. He is gentle, but he issues this call to faith in the form of command. And I would remind you that that's what Jesus does. If you are unbelieving this morning, he commands you, he calls to you to be believing. That is essential. It is necessary to believe in what? That Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. That he took your sin. That you need to have your penalty, your wrath that God would pour out upon your sin. You need to have that taken because you are a sinner. And that he rose again. You need the new life that he provides. This is your command to believe in these truths. And now Thomas is being asked to believe in this last part, this crowning achievement, the resurrection. Do not be unbelieving, but believing in this ongoing way. And I would also say that, so important, the idea is not that you have believed at some point in time only. I talk to people, I we go about do a lot of door-to-door witnessing, and we'll knock on the door and they'll say, well, I'm, I, I believed. And the question I'll ask them is, are you believing? Right? Are you, do you have an ongoing personal relationship with Jesus? Do you continue to believe? That's the idea. It's not just a profession you make at one time. This is an ongoing life demonstration of belief. And believe me, Thomas demonstrates that. And the other apostles demonstrate that. And all true believers demonstrate that. Don't tell me at your door if I show up, hey, I believed. Are you spending time with other believers? Are you reading his word? Are you loving Jesus? Well, I believed. I don't believe you. Because believing is ongoing. Do not be unbelieving, but be believing. And now we are building towards this declaration. So was Thomas a true doubter, a true cynic who would not believe? The answer is no. Right? By faith, what happens? Jesus and Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. The most powerful proclamation by any of the apostles. Right? The one who doubts the most, it seems, the one who wasn't there at the beginning that first night and, and, and says, I must see him and touch him. He makes this most powerful proclamation. Peter made proclamation of Jesus as the Messiah. Now, Thomas makes proclamation of Jesus as what? Messiah, Lord, and King, risen from the dead. The full package, if I may. My Lord and my God. And notice all of the words. They all matter. This is not the Lord, the God, like Nebuchadnezzar, who originally says, well, you know, I believe in this God of Daniel. I believe there is, you know, he is the God or a God. This is my Lord. Jesus is the one who died for you. He is your king and your master and your ruler, but that must be acknowledged by you. 
He is the Lord. He rules all things. All people will bend the knee to him, but he must be your Lord. That is, you trust in him personally, individually, that you recognize your need of his provision, that you recognize his rule and mastery over you. He is the Lord. There's really two words for God used in the New Testament generally, theos, God, and kyrios, Lord. And really all the names of God, if you, if you take Lord back into the Old Testament, that the, the powerful names of God are really bound up in this one word. The Greek just essentially uses this one. Jesus is called Lord and God, and here he's specifically called the Lord, which takes all of the power, all of the authority, all of the majesty of God and puts it into this one word. And it also represents the one who is the Savior. He rules and reigns, and yet he also is the one who has authority, title to your heart, as it were, because he died for you. So the Lord binds up in its understanding, and certainly now, as Thomas stands before the risen Lord, the one who is the Savior. So when you say, Lord, to Jesus, you are acknowledging all of those things about him. Well, what does Romans say? If you confess with your mouth, Jesus has... Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So the idea of Lord is to believe that God raised him from the dead. To believe then that he had to be raised from the dead because he actually died on your behalf. To believe in the death and burial as well. So Thomas is acknowledging all of this. You are the one who died for me, the one who rose from the dead. You are my master and ruler. But then he also adds, my Lord and my God. Now, Lord alone would have been sufficient. But Thomas acknowledges both. Again, I think to make incredibly clear who he understands Jesus to be. My Lord, Master, Ruler, King, the one who died for me, the one who's risen from the dead, and you are truly God. You are the God-man. You are the Lord God, the one who is the eternal Trinity, the one who is the eternal God of all creation, the God of the Old Testament, the God of all the work for Israel. You are fully God, and there is no more extensive and powerful proclamation than this, but you must believe both. He's your king and master, but not just because he's a little better than you or greater than you or a little more powerful than you, some deity created by someone else. He is also holy God, and you must believe them, and you must acknowledge them, your Lord, your God. Again, he is always the God of all, but in order to be saved by him, you must acknowledge this lordship over you and the fact that he is your God not just some God. There might be some of you sitting here this morning. You showed up because it's Easter. You showed up because there's family. You showed up because, well, I believe there is a God. That is insufficient. Lots of people believe there's a God. And, and they, if that's all they believe, will die and go to eternal hell. He's your God. You are personally responsible to him and you must acknowledge this reality. And yet he's also the God who loves you, who is holding out his hands, calling for you to come through his son. He is calling upon you to respond to the risen Christ so that you might be saved. The gospel of John has really come full circle. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And what does Thomas say here? My Lord and my God. But we're not done. Because you might be sitting here going, okay, Chris, I got that. And if Jesus shows up to me, then I'll believe. I'm just like Thomas. If I get to put my fingers in the nail scars, if I get to put my hand in his side, I'll believe, but not then. Why should I believe if Thomas didn't? Well, let's look back into our text. So verse 29, Jesus says, because you have seen me, have you believed? So this is 
Thomas's, that was Thomas's declaration. This is Thomas's legacy. What are we to take from this? That Jesus has to show up to us? That we have to be able to touch his, now we have no indication that Thomas actually touched Jesus. It seems like the moment Jesus showed up, that was enough for Thomas. My Lord and my God. He didn't put his fingers forth or anything. But is that what we're going to learn from this? Is that why John presents this? Absolutely not. This is his legacy. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? And I submit to you that that was necessary for Thomas as an apostle to have seen the risen Christ. All of the apostles saw him. Necessary to the foundation of their faith as they walk forward and write scripture for us. But then he says this, blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. I don't think he's talking about the apostles. They still needed to see. They did see and then they believed. He is talking to us. He's talking about all who come after this, all whom the apostles spoke to, all whom the apostles wrote to, and that would be us, because Jesus does not appear. He is not coming to show up to you personally. If you are waiting for that, you all will wait forever. And the only time you will ever see him personally is when he returns in glory to judge you. That's it. How does he appear now? You know, that's not fair. He appeared to them. Why doesn't he appear to me? Because he has given you something greater Why does he say, blessed are those who did not see and yet have believed? Verse 30, don't take these apart. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Why the therefore? Because John is saying, I recorded the signs that you needed. And that includes the resurrection, and that includes the proclamation of Thomas that Jesus is Lord and God, and of the other apostles that Jesus was Lord and Master and King, He says, I've included all of that, verse 31, but these have been written to you that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you will have life in his name. The Lord has sent something to you, and that is his word, his inspired word through these very apostles who did in fact see him, who did in fact touch the nail scars had they desired to do so, who did see the risen Christ. They're now giving written testimony to you. And John says, that is what you are to believe. You will receive no other testimony. This is sufficient. And in fact, it's more than Thomas even had at that point. It's more actually than the apostles themselves had. They were the ones who gave the rest of it, your Old Testament, and then new. You now have it all. You have the full written testimony without any lack of clarity. Why did God write? He wrote so that there would be no confusion. You could speak to someone, and everyone might say, well, what did he say? I think he said this, or I think he said this. It is written, you are reading the same thing that I am. You are reading the same thing that all who have believed have down throughout the ages have either seen or heard In the testimony of Scripture, it is clear. You can't explain it away. You can say, well, you know, I don't believe what you believe. That doesn't matter. Do you believe what this says? It's there. Read it. It's in print. If you are here this morning, you read it with me. It's why we open the Scriptures together. I'm not giving you my opinion. I'm not telling you something that Grace Community Church believes. It's not some mythical thing passed down verbally throughout the ages. It is written, and it was written so you would believe, will you? Will you? This is what you receive. This is all you receive because it is sufficient. And the Bible says in its own written record that this written word is greater than the eyewitness testimony. Do you believe it? By faith, you believe the truth of this word. And that's why John wrote. Why did he write about Thomas not believing and then believing? 
Why did he write about this proclamation, my Lord and my God? Not so you would doubt, not so you would somehow think Jesus will show up to me, but so that in reading those things, you would be convinced as Thomas was, believing his testimony. That's what God has for you this morning. So if you are a believer, maybe you are doubting, maybe you are wavering, longing to believe but unsure, might your doubts be washed away in the sure words of Scripture The testimony of a fellow doubter that there's no need to doubt. He's not doubting now. He wasn't doubting then. He didn't doubt the rest of his life. I mean, history tells us he died serving, got all the way to India and died there as a martyr. He did believe. So might your doubts, fellow Christian who is doubting this morning, be washed away in the truth of the word of God. He is your Lord. He is your God. And might you walk forth with joy. Are you a believer this morning? Delightfully assured of the reality of the risen Lord. That's why you came. (laughs) No, I believe this. I delight in this to be true. Then might the testimony of Thomas strengthen and encouraging. As the crowning proclamation of the entire word of God that he's your Lord and your God, might you take that proclamation through your life and through your words out to a lost and dying world. But are you an unbeliever this morning? Oh, maybe you've grown up in the church. Maybe you've heard these words. Maybe you, you know, say, well, he is, a, he is he's, I believe in God. I believe in, 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 in Jesus, but not as your God and your Lord. Then might you recognize the reality of your own sin and your need for a Savior. But the testimony of Thomas, presented in the authoritative, inerrant, sufficient word of God, be enough for you this morning. Jesus died for your sin. He rose again to give you life. Trust in him this morning. Drop to your knees and say, my Lord and my God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of being together this morning. Thank you for these truths that you have given to us, this testimony, the reality that Jesus walked and lived and died and this truth that even his body retains yet the nail scars and the, the, the wound of the spear. These things are real. Father, I pray that by your grace and the power of your spirit, we might believe the truths of your word now given to us by these very apostles who made this proclamation, testified to by the power of the spirit given to us, Lord, I pray that we would believe, that we would rejoice, that we would live for you fully as we walk forth from here this morning. In your precious name, Lord Jesus, amen.